Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. It's been about nine months since the Taliban seized power in Afghanistan. We're going to talk today about life under Taliban rule, the country's economic and humanitarian crises, the Taliban's recent decisions to keep most girls' secondary schools closed, and what that decision means for Afghanistan's relations with the outside world. Afghanistan is hanging by a thread. For Afghans, daily life has become a frozen hell. We need to suspend the rules and conditions that constrict not only Afghanistan's economy, but our life-saving operations. So that was UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres a few months ago when the UN was warning of a potential famine over the winter in Afghanistan. In the end, UN agencies largely managed to stave that off, but the humanitarian situation remains dire. That's largely due to the country's economic collapse, which has been triggered mostly by Western governments cutting off aid, freezing Afghanistan's assets, and their reluctance to lift sanctions. The Taliban has backtracked on a decision that would have allowed Afghan girls to go to school. Seven months after seizing power, Taliban leaders initially said girls would be able to attend middle and high schools, but their abrupt reversal saw thousands of disappointed students sent home from class. We just want to learn and to serve our country, says Fatima. What is our sin, she asked the Taliban. You're always talking about Islam. Does Islam say to harm women like this? On the 23rd of March, the Taliban announced that it wouldn't reopen girls' secondary schools across the country, in effect denying or continuing to deny millions of teenage Afghan girls their right to education. That decision has led to fury among many Afghans and reportedly even division within the Taliban itself. The decision also makes it much harder for Western capitals to reverse bans on getting non-humanitarian aid back into Afghanistan. This is Joseph Burrell, the EU's foreign and security policy chief. Denying education to millions of girls goes against the commitment that Afghanistan as a state has signed. The Taliban must reverse these decisions, not for the sake of the international community, but for the sake of the future of the people of Afghanistan, for themselves. So what's next for the Taliban's relations with the West? Is there any hope that Western capitals might ease the restrictions that are stopping money getting into Afghanistan that could get the economy going? And what hope is there that the Taliban walk back that decision on girls' education? Today we're going to talk to Crisis Group's Afghanistan experts, Ibrahim Bahis and Graham Smith. Ibrahim and Graham have just come back from a couple of weeks in Afghanistan, their first time back in the country since the Taliban takeover. Ibrahim, Graham, welcome on again. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you guys again. So let's start with an overview of how things were in Kabul. Can you give us a sense of what life was like uh, in the Kabul streets? I mean, for me, it was uh, it was strange to be back. I'd been away for years since before the pandemic. And this is a place where I used to live. I, I lived in, in Kabul for five years and down in the south in Kandahar for a few years as well. And, you know, Kabul had always been 
a kind of a bubble. In fact, it was nicknamed the Kabubble, uh, sort of a world apart from the rest of the country. And, you know, my impression walking around the streets was that now Kabul resembles the rest of Afghanistan a bit more than it used to. Even the women in the streets, uh, you used to see, you know, the occasional woman wearing jeans and maybe no headscarf. And, and now this time, there are a lot fewer women in the streets and they're dressed more conservatively. And uh, just the whole atmosphere um, was uh, a little sleepier, you know, didn't have that kind of bustling energy that uh, Kabul used to have. Um, certainly a lot more peaceful, um, just, you know, remarkably uh, more quiet than, than previously. Yeah, a little, a little eerie, a little, a little too calm, maybe. Uh, uh, similar to what Graham said, to me it felt like uh, Kabul had gone through this huge demographic change. Uh, when you when you would walk the streets of Kabul in the past, you'd see a lot of people with Western style clothing. Right now, you, you noticed a lot of people. The the rural Afghanistan coming into Kabul, you saw people with turbans and the traditional attire for both males and females was a lot more on display than we had seen in the past. Uh, it, it felt like, a not I wouldn't call it an empty city, but as Graham put it, it was a lot quieter than uh, it had been in the past. And Ibrahim Graham, can I ask a little bit about the, you know, you, you sort of hear, again, sort of reporters that, that go in and, and, you know, comparing what Kabul is like now com- compared to how it was whatever a year ago two years ago and you know one of the things they say is of course that you know you don't see as you say Graham you don't see so many women in the streets and most women are wearing more conservative clothes which we'll talk about shortly but one of the other things people say is that um, the security situation is hugely improved there aren't sort of streets closed with big concrete barriers and uh there aren't roads closed off for security and for foreign embassies and that, that generally crime in the streets has gone down. I mean, is that all true? I mean, it's worth emphasizing just how superficial our impressions are. You know, a very short visit, just a couple of weeks. Um, both Ibrahim and I are lucky enough to land in Afghanistan on foreign passports as visitors at the invitation of the Taliban. And so our, you know, the, the, the window we have on the situation is, you know, is colored by our privilege. Um, but yeah, it did seem uh, to us safer uh, than it was in the past. Uh, some of those barriers have come down. Kabul used to be absolutely um, divided up into little sort of balkanized statelets um, by these uh, huge amounts of security infrastructure. And those, it, some of it still exists. You know, the high walls are still there. They haven't torn down everything. Uh, but my room overlooked a main uh, intersection near the presidential palace. That was a place where uh, guards used to be on high alert. They were constantly screaming through loud hailers to warn off uh, traffic. Um, parts of that intersection were destroyed in a huge explosion in uh, 2017. Uh, so it was a kind of a, a high-tension uh, location uh, and now, you know, there were just a couple of Taliban guards slumped on old office chairs, uh, kind of lazily checking credentials for people coming in, coming out. The whole energy um, has really changed, I think, as the security situation has to some extent stabilized. I mean, there are, uh, you know, just after we, we left uh, Kabul, there were a series of terrible uh, attacks against, uh, largely against the Hazara minority. Um, these are believed to have been perpetrated, uh, or many of them claimed by um, Daesh, by the local affiliate of the Islamic State. So there are still things going bang uh, from time to time, uh, but the numbers are dramatically lower than they were previously. So can I ask you both how we should think about what you're saying? So on the one hand, we have an observation about, you know, sort of women's dress or or the the sort of style of, of more Western-influenced uh, individuals on the street. And on the other hand, this sense that Kabul didn't feel like it was a, a city at war and it didn't feel like it was militarized in the way it has been for at least the last 20 years. What was your sense of people's impression of that shift? 
Naz, I think the short answer to uh, how do Afghans feel um, really, really depends on on who you are. Um, I think there is uh, obviously a whole uh, group of people who feel just a tremendous sense of, of relief that the war is mostly over. The worsening economic situation um, is really biting down hard, though, um, as we uh, would walk past the bakeries, um, especially around the time of the Azan, as people are getting ready to, to break their fast uh, during the holy month of Ramadan. There were just these really distressing scenes of, um, you know, women uh, often wearing burqas, you know, begging for scraps of bread. Um, and the level of, of desperation as the economy collapses um, is really something that is hard to watch. Um, I, you know, on, on the other hand, um, uh, I was, uh, driving around, uh, with an old friend, um, who was saying that he actually, he likes the, the sleepy atmosphere. He likes the, the fact that things are more orderly now. Um, uh, the streets are cleaner. He said, Kabul isn't, uh, the same sort of dangerous place it used to be. We were driving behind a, um, a street cleaning truck. It had a big water tanker, uh, on the back and, you know, in the past, it was impossible to, to drive close to a water tanker without fearing that it was going to blow up. And, you know, it was, it was strange. I think both of us had this, this kind of moment of, of realizing that this is just a water tanker now. You know, it's just cleaning the streets. So, yeah, it really depends who you are, uh, how you feel about this new situation. And we'll come to the, the, the sort of economic crisis in a moment. But, I mean, in, Graham Ibrahim, I mean, it, although the streets of Kabul are secure, there are still a lot of stories of... You know, the, the Taliban running a pretty sort of draconian state. Are there people whose security is under more threat now because of uh, since the Taliban took over? I mean, uh, former government officials, some of the people that are, that, that are trying to get out now? Yeah, former government officials, um, a lot of them are still quite afraid. Um, it's worth noting that that's, that's really, we're talking about the more senior levels, I think, um, just on a on a practical level, when you walk into a government ministry these days, um, you know, you see a lot more former government officials than current government officials. That is to say, you know, the, the, the Taliban has kept uh, the civil service largely on the payroll. The Taliban claim there are, you know, half a million uh, civil servants still on the payroll and only about 4,000 new appointees. Uh, those numbers are probably not entirely correct. And, you know, the thousands of new Taliban appointees are quite important in the sense that they've become the bosses of all these uh, government offices. Um, so just on a daily basis, you know, you, you run into uh, people who used to work for the former republic um, working side by side with Taliban. And, you know, they're, they're not stabbing each other with their pens when they show up for work. But at a higher level, yeah, um, I spoke to a, a former uh, Republic official who um, is really fearful. You know, he's staying mostly close to home. Uh, he Every time he rolls up to a Taliban checkpoint, he's not sure if the Taliban will ask him hard questions about what he used to do under the Republic regime. There have been reports of large numbers of mostly people affiliated with uh, former security forces being killed. The numbers vary. Uh, the largest claim so far has been from the New York Times. It was 490 people affiliated with the former government. The thing to keep in mind, I think, is that, um, you know, that used to be the body count on a single day in Afghanistan. And so if 490 people have been killed uh, since August, that's still, uh, you know, far too many, but it's, it's, it's not uh, a particularly large number in, in the context of the Afghan conflict. So this 20 years, you know, plus even more, if you include the, the civil war in the 1990s, in lots of years of, of, of war, you know, you'd expect a lot of score settling uh, after that sort of experience. And yet you think that the Taliban has sort of managed to keep a lid on a lot of that, has managed to impose its own form of law and order, even after all these years of violence. It does seem that way. I, I would say, I'd emphasize again, just how little we know. I mean, the ability of the United Nations, the ability of, um, you know, Western analysts, the ability of the media to, to track 
what's going on and really uh, understand, for example, how many revenge killings have there been, it's really limited. Um, and there's been a lot of pressure on journalists. Uh, I got a message this morning from a journalist who was arrested twice recently. Um, and of course, he's not reporting the same way he used to. I think we can tentatively conclude that the score settling the revenge killings have been low when we're talking about the aftermath of the deadliest war on the planet. Um, but, I, you know, it's worth just remembering um, that our ability to understand the situation is pretty limited. Uh, so just to add to that, um, I, I should add that when the Taliban took over as they were, as the provinces started falling and the, uh, the, the kind of lightning offensive was taking place, they announced a general amnesty saying, anyone who surrenders will not be harmed. Uh, whether the Taliban have uh, abided by that, um, uh, as Graham said, we, we, we are not 100% sure. But what I do want to point is this was quite a departure when we look at recent Afghan history. In Afghanistan, every time there's been a change in government, you have seen very significant revenge taking. Even if we go back to 2002, when the Taliban's uh, previous government was toppled uh, w with uh, international intervention, the Taliban tried to surrender in some cases, and while they were negotiating their surrender, they were raided and arrested and taken to Guantanamo. So the Taliban's amnesty offer was quite unique. I don't think it necessarily was a sign of magnanimity. It was more a utility because the Taliban leadership at least seemed to understand that they would need this well-trained technical force if they want to run a government. With the civil sector, I, I think that's why we have seen it play out. Uh, the amnesty has been a lot more coherent and uniform. Uh, some senior members, politicians and other seniors, uh, members of the previous Republican government uh, escaped when the Taliban took over. But the Taliban claim that the vast majority of the junior public sector has re remained in position and they're continuing to work uh, with the Taliban. I think where we're seeing uh, breaches of the Taliban's amnesty, it's mostly with previous special forces and commando forces, and that's because they were the hammer of the previous government. They were the ones leading the fight against the Taliban, and the two would have clashed and killed a lot of comrades of each other, and I think that kind of increases the motivation why we have seen revenge killings against commando forces and special forces. We've also seen revenge attacks against uh, the Afghan local police. These were local villagers and people who had taken up arms and were supported by the uh, government and the international forces to drive out the Taliban. And again, the Taliban accused a lot of these of crimes against not only Taliban members, but also their family uh, members and relatives. So I think if we look at the number of times the Taliban leaders from the top leader, Amir, to the defense minister, to the interior minister, their emphasis on saying that amnesty is a religious obligation and all the members need to fulfill it. Sirajuddin Haqqani gave a speech recently and he said he saw the killer of his brother uh, in, in a meeting and he chose not to take revenge. I don't know if that story is true or not, but it was certainly the intention appeared to be to try to drive uh, the message that the amnesty needs to be uh, uh, respected by its rank and file. But uh, we, we have to recall in Afghanistan, there is a very strong tr tradition, particularly in the Pashtun community of uh, badal or revenge. Uh, Afghan tribes would often fight for years based on these you know, re uh, mutual uh, revenge attacks against each other. So it, it is not entirely surprising that some Taliban members uh, are taking the law into their own hands and the Taliban are continuing to struggle to enforce their amnesty policy that they've announced. I have to ask, I mean, how much of this then reflects on the extent to which the Western military presence um, was responsible for so much of the violence and bloodshed. I mean, the, the, what you're telling us goes against many of the predictions about what would happen once Western troops left and, and the killings that would occur in the wake of it. And, and I have to, I have to ask sort of how much does this tell us about the extent to which the Western presence itself was, was the cause of so much of the violence that we saw prior to the Taliban takeover? 
I would agree that at least there seem to be some sign that suggests that the surge of the troops in Afghanistan correlated with the expansion of the insurgency. I, I would uh, hesitate to attribute causality, but we saw at least a correlation where, as the international in the areas where international troops showed up, you saw an insurgency uh, appearing there shortly thereafter. I, I, I think a lot of it was. Uh, if we were to assume causality, a lot of it was to do with the fact that the international troops didn't understand the local communities, the environment in which they were operating. At times, Afghans were, as agents would, uh, they had agency in the sense that they would use the international presence to settle scores against one another, and that would disenfranchise a part of the community who would then look for an alternative and the only alternative they could find was the insurgency being led by the Taliban. Naz, I think a question that we have now is whether the Taliban are actually repeating some of these past mistakes in the sense that, I mean, it's good that they have avoided the sort of furious brutality that has accompanied changes of power uh, in the past in Afghanistan. Um, You know, there have been these revenge killings, but you know, it's been nothing near, uh, as Ibrahim said, nothing near the scale of the killings that have, has occurred when power changed hands in the past. But the Taliban are repeating um, some of the exclusionary politics um, that their predecessors were guilty of. I mean, um, when we describe the history of why there was an insurgency in Afghanistan, one of the key events was the Bonn Conference in the early years where um, Western powers organized a kind of uh, council of uh, some of the biggest Afghan political factions and had them kind of set the foundations for uh, the political dispensation in Kabul. And uh, the Taliban were excluded uh, from that gathering and excluded from uh, the political setup that followed. And that exclusion drove violence. The, the Taliban being kept out of power uh, was a big reason why uh, why there was a war. And uh, the Taliban have now taken over uh, Kabul. Uh, they have set up what they call an interim administration. Um, and they've really failed to include anyone except themselves. Um, and so the new uh, ruling setup uh, is maybe vulnerable to to making the same blunders that have occurred in the past, where... Um, not having a diversity of voices uh, means that you rule for only a a narrow uh, group of Afghans. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to what Afghan politics looks like now and some of the recent government's decisions that the Taliban's taken. Um, Before we do that, though, Graham Ibrahim, could we just talk a little bit more about the the humanitarian crisis, which is, as you say, has been provoked by this sort of economic crisis? What does that sort of look like in practice? If you're a family, let's say in Kabul, I mean, what is, how are you feeling the sort of economic pinch? What does it mean in terms of what you can't do now that you used to be able to do, let's say, you know, seven, eight months ago? Most of the food, uh, uh, most of the food in Afghanistan is imported. Um, and uh, the, the biggest uh, staple uh, for Afghans is, is bread. Uh, the, the wheat flour comes in mostly uh, from Central Asia and um, Afghanistan has really uh, struggled um, since the departure of foreign troops uh, with economic restrictions imposed by the West. Um, uh, pre-existing sanctions on the Taliban uh, were allowed to become sanctions essentially on the country as a whole. Um, there was a dramatic shutoff of uh, development aid um, and a variety of other uh, sort of pernicious ways that uh, economic isolation um, really dug into the pocketbooks of, uh, of ordinary Afghans. Um, and so what this meant was that um, uh, if an, an ordinary laborer goes out into the fields and spends a day working, or an ordinary construction worker spends a day on a construction site in Kabul, uh, the, that labor ended up purchasing about one-third less uh, wheat flour at the end of the day. Uh, this is monitoring done by the World Food Program. 
And um, the reason for that is that importers of, of, of wheat flour used to be able to, you know, send a wire transfer to buy wheat flour. And, and now, um, you know, those banking channels are largely cut off and they're, they're shunting money through uh, informal dealers. Uh, the formal banking sector has effectively collapsed. Uh, and the extra costs of, of doing those transactions is passed on to the consumers. The uh, U.S. government and other Western governments have seized the assets of the central bank. They're still in negotiations uh, about the conditions under which those might be returned. Um, and so for the, for the moment, the only thing that's sort of providing price stability is the cascade of uh, humanitarian dollars coming in. Um, the United Nations, at great expense, is packaging up uh, pallets of, of U.S. dollars and flying them into the country. It's an incredibly costly uh, operation, but the arrival of those uh, U.S. dollars somehow floats the value of the currency for the moment. And so the, the whole economy has kind of um, really lurched hard. Um, and, and, and the way you see it is, um, you know, people uh, putting, you know, uh, crumpled paper Afghanis through the windows of the bakeries and, and just getting less bread uh, at the end of the day. And we hear, uh, you know, a lot of stories of, of terrible suffering of families going hungry, as you say, facing these these awful dilemmas about sort of how to get food. Before the end of last year, towards the end of, of 2021, there were a lot of warnings about sort of famine over the winter. I remember we talked about millions of Afghans, millions of Afghan children, uh, especially sort of potentially dying over the winter. You know, I realise there's a lot that we don't know but that doesn't seem to have happened. I mean, is, is that right? And sort of if so, how did the UN, how did others manage to stave off some of the worst of what we were expecting? Yes, that's right. I mean, um, the international community uh, pledged more than $2 billion for, uh, for humanitarian aid. Um, there's been a tremendous uh, political effort as well. Um, I mean, it's very difficult for the US government to, to turn around and say, okay, okay, you know, we lost the war and and we're going to work with the new authorities to try to stave off a disaster. And so what you saw um, during the Ukraine crisis when nobody was looking was the U.S. Treasury Department published something called General License 20, which I understand it's sort of unprecedented in the history of, of sanctions policy because the General License 20 essentially says the sanctions don't apply uh, in most cases, uh, they don't apply to private businesses uh, across Afghanistan. They don't even apply to, to government ministries. Uh, it's just you, you cannot um, offer material assistance to uh, listed members of the Taliban in their personal capacities. But you can, for example, um, offer support to, say, the education ministry and, and you know, uh, give help to the education ministry to provide girls' schools, uh, even though the education ministry is run by a member of the Taliban. And so it's a big gesture by the Americans. Um, on this trip, we were going around and talking to, you know, central bankers and trying to get a sense of the impact of General License 20. And I have to say, I was a little disappointed. Um, you know, it turns out that issuing a general license doesn't lift the chill of sanctions from the economy as a whole. Bankers uh, still want to be able to um, bank normally with the world, um, which is very important for Afghans to be able to eat. I talked to a banker who had $30 million sitting uh, in a Citibank account, um, and Citibank won't even answer his emails. And I said, well, why is that? Because General License 20 makes it completely legal to deal with you as a banker. And he said, I, you know, I don't know. This heroic uh, humanitarian effort that's happened um, in the last uh, few months, you're right, it has been able to, to stave off a famine so far. I think we're probably going to get through the summer with no declaration of a famine, which is a minor miracle. Um, but then we're going to hit the winter again, and we'll be back in the lean, hungry season when Afghans don't have their own crops coming off the fields. Um, and that's really scary, and, and, and something's got to give. Some, some policy has to change. Uh, in order to keep us off the brink of, of famine. So, Graham, just to follow up on that, and I, and I do think we see this often with U.S. sanctions in particular, is that the overarching sanctions cause such concern amongst in private industry and particularly in the financial sector that the general licenses 
um, just don't do enough to quell the concerns of, of those industries, right? That they still think that there is so much risk associated with certain kinds of transactions that the general license uh, doesn't give them enough cover. And of course, they don't, they have no obligation to do so uh, necessarily. So I'm wondering, what is your sense of the sustainability of carve outs as a way of ensuring Afghan access, not only to their own resources, but also to um, humanitarian and other goods. In other words, it, can the carve-outs continue to be the way that resources get and cash gets to Afghanistan, or does there need to be a point at which the overarching uh, sanctions are removed as such, not just by the U.S., but also by the Security Council? I mean, this is something that we're still um, still researching. But yeah, your question leans in the direction that, that, that my questions are leaning as well in terms of if under these existing uh, carve-outs, humanitarian aid can be delivered. Um, but we don't want to create a kind of um, perpetually needy zombie state. You know, this Afghanistan cannot become... Uh, a giant-sized Gaza, you know, the, partly because the Gaza model just doesn't scale, and Afghanistan is twenty times bigger. Um, but also uh, because I don't think there will be appetite in the international community to continue sending billions and billions of dollars of humanitarian aid. I mean, this has to end, and uh, and the exit from uh, aid dependency, uh, I think, will depend on kind of turning the corner towards more development aid. Um, you know, instead of sending food, you know, sending assistance for irrigation projects so that, you know, Afghans can feed themselves. And so it, it will be not just uh, investing money in uh, infrastructure projects. I think it would also be um, investing in uh, investing political capital in, in these very emotionally difficult uh, things like saying, okay, why do we have sanctions? You know, maybe we do have to think about lifting some of these sanctions, as difficult as that is in Washington, D.C. And so, Graham, you have this general license 20 that you talked about, which went through at the end of February. But as you say, that, you know, although in principle it allows funds to go to the government, to go to ministries, in reality, it hasn't led to a lot more money getting into Afghanistan, as you, you know, as you talked about. But then you still have nine billion of Afghan central bank assets that Western governments have, in essence, frozen since the Taliban took power. So seven billion of that, I think, is in the U.S. Recently, the Biden administration said that half of that, so three point five billion, uh, I think, will be sort of set aside and can be pursued in the courts by the victims of the the nine eleven attacks. But then there's the remainder, the other three point five billion that's in the U.S that's been set aside for Afghanistan. But the US is still sort of sitting on that, right, despite the sort of general license 20, despite the sanctions carve-outs. So, so, so why is that? I mean, what are the main obstacles to putting some of that money back into the central bank, for example, or into Afghanistan? I mean, is it again a sort of political decision that Biden's reluctant to take, even while you know, attention is focused on Ukraine? Or is it more concerns about oversight in the central bank and sort of where the money will end up? This is not just a political decision. This is maybe the key uh, political decision, in my view, uh, to unlocking the Afghan economy is getting the central bank back on its feet. Uh, and the central bank, you know, can't do its job if it's been robbed of its assets. So, yes, um, there is a need to deal not just with the American government, but also the other Western governments that are holding uh, Afghan central bank assets. I think the U.S. government has concerns about the independence and professionalism uh, of the central bank. Uh, the American side would like to see personnel changes at the top um, so that, for example, uh, no listed terrorists uh, are running the central bank in the American view. Because right now the head of the central bank is uh, is the, the essentially the Taliban's long-serving treasurer you know, who's, who's listed by the U.S. as a terrorist. Correct. And, 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 and the Taliban uh, really trusts Haji Idris. Uh, he's been handling money for them for a long time. Uh, and so on principle, you know, they, they want to know why it is that the Americans should be, you know, reaching into their uh, government and changing personnel. Um, but also in practice, I think there's some reluctance um, to, to make a change there. But 
maybe it's not impossible to imagine uh, some kind of change, particularly if uh, it means that uh, DAB, the Afghanistan Bank, the central bank, can can recapitalize and, and resume uh, providing some stability to the currency, um, some price stability. The need for a, a functioning central bank is extremely urgent. Um, those negotiations between the Taliban and the United States are ongoing. Um, and uh, I really hope that they can uh, reach a deal soon. If you look at the healthcare system, for example, or the school system, the schools that are open, I mean, how are the salaries of healthcare workers, how are the salaries of teachers being paid if it's not going through the government? All of those salaries are going through NGOs, through international organizations? So um, it's never really been an either or uh, situation. Uh, there have been, you know, fights between previous governments and donors on over on budget versus off budget uh, funding. Um, I think the re- the reality has always been a bit more of a hybrid. Um, in the health sector, um, it was already uh, mostly about two thirds of all of the health facility facilities in Afghanistan uh, were covered through a program called Sahatmandi, which was World Bank uh, funded and. In practice, a lot of those services were being delivered by NGOs, um, and so they continue to be uh, delivered by NGOs. In the education sector, it's a little more tricky uh, because um, the education ministry uh, directly employs hundreds of thousands of staff. The numbers are a bit disputed, but we're probably talking about uh, 200,000 200, or so uh, teachers and um, it is more difficult politically for donors to reach in and be funding, you know, the Taliban's civil servants. Um, and yet that's what needs to happen in order to have uh, girls and boys uh, going to school across the country. Um, you know, this is, a, this is an incredibly aid-dependent state, and uh, the Taliban are, are trying to uh, become uh, less aid-dependent. They are actually doing a pretty good job of collecting customs revenues and other forms of taxation. But it was a country that depended on donations for 75% of its government's budget. So there are long ways, they've got a long ways to travel in terms of becoming completely self-sufficient. Um, and so, yes, I think in the education sector, there's a hope that the World Bank um, can step in and start providing stipends for teachers uh, but they can't do that as long as the Taliban stubbornly refuse to allow uh, teenage girls back to school because no Western donor will, um, you know, support uh, an education system that is biased against women. So this brings us to the decision on the 23rd of March, the Taliban announced that girls' secondary schools would, in essence, stay closed uh, despite having long promised that they would reopen across the country. And it seems to have been a decision taken, not in Kabul, but in Kandahar by the Taliban's emir, the leader, Hamatullah Akunzada, and a group around him. And the decision seems to have surprised not only donors who'd sort of been in touch with Taliban officials in Kabul, but also many of those Taliban leaders in Kabul. It seems to have even taken some of them aback and it was sort of really expected to go the other way. I mean... I don't know, Ibrahim, but sort of what explains this decision and is that is that account a bit fair? Well, let me say that um, the girls' education, while it has received a lot of attention in the media, it was part of a broader kind of push within the Taliban and it suggests a kind of pull and push within the Taliban's movement. For a long time, we have either assumed that the Taliban is a monolithic movement uh, that shares a singular ideology, or we have tended to paint the movement with simplistic terms such as moderates and hardliners. Uh, the truth is it's a vast movement and there's likely to be a diversity of opinion on a number of issues. I think with the Taliban we are seeing two kind of broad themes uh, that's driving the struggle within the, the movement as it has transitioned to a government. On the one hand, uh, you're seeing Taliban rank and file and some leaders grumbling that their government looks too much like the Republican government they replaced, a government against which they sacrificed and fought for 20 years. 
And I think that sentiment is behind uh, the recent drive to make the government look more like the emirate of the 1990s. Unfortunately, a lot of those decisions have tended to focus on either women, restrictions on females, we, and that were the girls' education was one of those, but we also saw restrictions on females being able to travel in the country, uh, uh, the type of attire that females were wearing, uh, and very recently restrictions on female drivers. But also another part of those restrictions have been social restrictions, men, uh, government employees being ordered to grow beards and wear caps and music and uh, other types of activities being banned in the so, uh, public sphere. The other broad theme, I think, uh, is that there is, there are people within the Taliban movement who see the emirate of the 1990s as a tried and failed experiment in state building. I, I think there is a recognition uh, by some within the movement that the, 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 the totalitarian type of govern, governance approach and the restrictive policies they adopted in the 1990s cost them uh, uh, the goodwill of the population. So there's a desire to tread a new path as uh, the Taliban 2.0, but perhaps even this segment is a bit unsure of what uh, that alternative looks like and the lack of vision for that new uh, way to do governance is what's uh, kind of uh, strengthening the hand of the hardliners and, and pushing back against uh, this new approach. And Ibrahim, could I just push a little bit more on that? And again, I realize that you want to avoid sort of too simplistic uh, uh, labels, hardliners and people that are more pragmatic. But there was this sense, from what I understand, before this decision on girls' education, and I appreciate that that was part of a wider package of decisions that have suggested a more draconian direction in governance. But it's the one that has got a lot of media attention. And it's also the one that's got a, a lot of attention, crucially, in the Western capitals that are deciding aid policy. So it has been a decision that has had, uh, you know, that, that has had uh, enormous importance for the Taliban's relations with the outside world and for the Taliban's uh, Afghanistan's uh, and Afghan's uh, finances. Um, so there was before the decision was taken, it, you know, the, the it, it did seem that it, that it might go a different way. That there were Taliban leaders in Kabul that were reassuring donors, Western diplomats. Does it say something about the way that the Taliban itself is making decisions? That there is still a very powerful decision-making group that donors don't get to see or talk to in Kandahar. Um, that in fact is at the moment sort of carrying the day. I'm glad you're pushing back because I don't want to uh, obfuscate the argument that the reversal, the, the decision not to open girls' education impacts millions of Afghans. And, and it has not only strained relations with the uh, international community, including countries that have uh, historically tended to do, uh, be donor states and, and supporting the Afghan government, but also it, it has disenfranchised large population uh, segments of the population against the Taliban's government. But I, I think in, in many ways it speaks to how domestic and intra-movement concerns drive Taliban policies rather than relations with the international community. I think that for the Taliban, the, the decision to reverse girls' education was primarily driven firstly by the need to have a cohesive movement and I think perhaps people felt that if they if their government resembles the republic too much you will have members of the Taliban movement getting uh, alienated and risk fragmentation of the movement and so in my opinion it, it's the, the issue is not necessarily that they are powerful people behind a curtain who make decisions I think the primary reason for the reversal was this concern that the Taliban needs to retain its unity, and even if that comes at the cost of millions of girls, so be it. Also remember that the Taliban are pulled in very disparate directions politically. I mean, I heard a story recently of a delegation of tribal elders from Uruzgan province, uh, sort of a part of the Taliban heartland, uh, that traveled to Kandahar City for an, an audience with the emir, the supreme uh, Taliban leader, 
Um, and they told him apparently that, uh, look, uh, our people suffered for two decades under foreign occupation. We fought and died against the Americans and their allies. And now we have one demand from you, and that is do not allow uh, the girls' secondary schools to reopen. Uh, this is our demand uh, for um, the kind of Afghanistan that we want. And so, you know, when Ibrahim and I visit Kabul, every single person we spoke to said they're horrified by the decision to close the girls' secondary schools. But it's re worth remembering that out in, in rural Afghanistan, there are different views and that, that, that might pull the Taliban in different directions. That's that's true, Graham. But generally, the the you know over the course of the republic over the twenty years, what two thousand one till the Taliban takeover, you saw numbers of girls in secondary schools increasing, you know, across the country, even in conservative areas. I mean, it took a while, but but there were there were girls. And we've spoken about this before. Uh, overwhelmingly, families, presumably including many Taliban families wanted to send their girls to school. Sure, there are some constituencies, and, and, and you talked about the, the group of elders from Orozgan that oppose that, but presumably this is a small constituency that's pushing uh, the emir in this direction. I mean, we don't really know because, um, you know, we've, we've never yeah, had any ability to do polling uh, in, a, in a reliable way in Afghanistan. Um, but yeah, I think that's a fair point, actually, that... Uh, that Afghans across the country um, have essentially sort of voted uh, with their feet. You know, like, they, you know, you, you see children walking to school um, all across the country and um, nobody forced them to do that. So it's, yeah, I think you're right. There was a bit of a slow uptake in some areas, but yeah, over time it really gained momentum and um, education of boys and girls, but especially girls, was one of the real uh, achievements of the last 20 years. Um, so I think Ibrahim is right that um, if the Taliban want to avoid resistance to their government, um, this is one of the key things that they need to uh, accommodate. Does that mean is there any chance of walking it back? I mean, the, the communication around the decision was a little bit strange. It was about, I can't remember, you know this better than I do, but it was something to do with the, the outfits or, you know, the, the security situation wasn't good enough. Is there a potential for this decision to sort of change over coming months? My own sense is that, yes, there's a chance to see a reversal, but that uh, if a reversal does come, uh, it will probably uh, have less to do with the Taliban trying to curry favor with Western capitals and more about an internal uh, decision about the kind of overall direction that they want to be going. Uh, yes, uh, I would say that uh, the point you made earlier that uh, perhaps uh, a, a ban or opposition to girls' opposition is not an opinion shared by the large majority of Afghans. I, without having done polling or anything or back, having any data to back me, Instinctively, I think that a large majority of Afghans do want education for uh, girls, for their, for their daughters, including many within the Taliban. But uh, the Taliban is a primarily, its leadership is disproportionately composed of people from southern Afghanistan. And if people in southern Afghanistan, even if a small vocal minority is opposed to girls' education, it, it kind of... Uh, plays a big impact on the decision the Taliban take. But since the decision, we've seen a kind of almost, one can say, an organized counter campaign where you've seen scholars, including uh, Islamic scholars associated and affiliated with the Taliban movement, coming out and saying that there's no justification for allowing boys' education but not girls' education. You've seen, we've seen ta serving Taliban government officials, uh, at least in the initial days, uh, criticized the, the, the leadership's decision to reverse the education. And, and right now we are hearing promises that the Taliban will uh, gather a, 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 a gathering of Islamic scholars who will decide this question. Uh, but as you pointed out, Richard, the Taliban, they kind of justified it by saying we need buses to be able to ferry the girls to and from the school back to their homes and we need uh, uniforms that are more Islamic and whatnot. So my suspicion is even if there's a gathering of Islamic scholars, you might get something where 
and again, this is an optimistic view and assuming that the gathering decides that girls' education should be allowed, what that could look like is perhaps in uh, parts of the country, girls' education is able to resume and in other parts, uh, the restrictions are, uh, the, the conditions are so strict that uh, we, we are talking about uh, more conservative uniforms for girls, we're talking about buses that have to take girls to the school and back to their homes and other quite uh, burdensome conditions and given that the Afghan government doesn't have capacity to finance these kind of operations it, it might be something that donor states might be asked to finance. Could I ask you a follow-up question about this? So, I mean, for our audiences in the West, the idea of a vocal religious minority pulling political parties in a direction, including on issues related to women, girls, and their bodies, uh, in ways that would be shocking to other members of the polity, shouldn't sound so strange or unusual. And I say that without trying to draw um, sort of trite equivalences across countries. Uh, but it sounds to me like part of what you're saying is there is and has been, I think, for a long time, a debate within the religious community amongst uh, religious scholars and elders, as as well as the broader Afghan public on this issue, and that many Afghans feel that this is a, a, a critical issue to the future of the Afghanistan that they want to see. In light of that, should this issue continue to occupy such a central place in how Western actors uh, shape their relationship to the Taliban? Should this continue to be seen as a kind of contingency on further engagement or release of funds or donor monies? There is no kind of um, template for the human rights uh, thresholds that uh, donors should consider when thinking about, for example, you know, funding the education system of a, of a country. I mean, obviously there are humanitarian norms, but because Afghanistan is so exceptional and so exceptionally needy, um, you know, there aren't a lot of best practices that we can borrow from other contexts. And it will come down to this, um, you know, emotional appetite by the Western donors to engage. And that's why I think, like it or not, the issue of girls' schooling um, has become a, an incredibly central uh, political issue, um, both uh, sort of symbolically within the country, um, you know, as a, as a symbol of um, what kind of future Afghanistan we're going to have, but also, you know, in relation to external donors. I, I've just been speaking to, um, to donors who have huge budgets that they could be spending uh, in Afghanistan. And for them, politically... Um, the girls' schooling issue really does matter. If the Taliban are going to shut millions of teenage girls across the country out of school, um, it just becomes hard to fundraise uh, in the West for um, support for the Afghan state. Just to add to that, uh, I've, uh, I'm glad you pointed it out, Naz, that uh, this decision uh, is part of a broader kind of societal debate Afghanistan has a traditional education system that's generally referred to as madrasa and the modern schooling system is just over a hundred years old to the country and there has been historically opposition to the schooling system not just for girls but for boys as well especially the madrasa graduates and, and, and people who hail from the madrasa system see the modern schooling as a type of westernization effort that is uh, more and more uh, impeaching on their uh, system and trying to remove their system. That's something we've seen in other countries as well in the Indian subcontinent. But in Afghanistan, it's a particularly fierce kind of debate that has raged on. And it's worth pointing out that when you go to rural Afghanistan, there a lot of people still uh, are opposed to the modern schooling system and they prefer to send their sons uh, as well as their daughters to madrasa systems rather than... Um, uh, uh, to the modern schooling system. And on the second part of your question about whether it's the right approach, uh, I fully agree with Graham. It is likely to be the litmus test because there isn't a lot of appetite by the donor states to engage with the Taliban government and their decision to ban millions of girls from getting an education uh, makes it even harder for those governments to try to engage with the Taliban and 
try to provide some kind of support for the Afghan uh, public sector and the Afghan economy so that it can survive and uh, eventually move away from that uh, high dependency on aid that it currently is in. One small silver lining to this, just if I could add, you know, the, the only measure that we have so far of how many girls are in school are surveys that are done for the World Bank. And the very first uh, survey that came out showed that across the country, there are today under the Taliban, more girls attending school than attended previously under the Republic. But Grant, the figure presumably is girls overall, not, not uh, teenage girls, not secondary school age girls. Correct. Absolutely. That it is a number for girls overall. And presumably that means that for the reasons you say, mostly related to security, more families are comfortable sending their younger girls to school where they still can and they can do so without fear uh, for their safety or with less fear for their safety. But the numbers of teenage girls whose right to an education the Taliban are denying, that must have shot up, right? I mean, far, far fewer girls are now getting secondary school education now that the Taliban holds power and plenty of reporting shows and, you know, as we heard up top, that's caused enormous upset and anger for many, many girls and their, and their families who have seen, you know, the opportunities open to them, their futures dramatically curtailed. Absolutely. Uh, there may also be a small effect where uh, families feel more comfortable sending uh, girls to school uh, under the Taliban because they think the schools will... Um, respect the honor of the girls uh, more than the previous government did. Um, but I mean, these, these are very early surveys and I think um, we need to wait for, uh, for more data on this. I, I think that comes back to something Ibrahim said about the longstanding debate within the Taliban movement and within more conservative Islamic legal circles about even having classes on man-made sciences, right? And the and the fear of a kind of secular education creeping into schools for boys and girls. And again, at the risk of sort of uh, comparisons that don't make sense for those who are driven to kind of have a reaction that this says something about Afghanistan or about the Taliban um, being in a previous century. I, you know, we we see robust and very religiously inflected debates in countries such as the U.S. about children's curriculum and about what children are exposed to in school. So I think it it kind of goes back to this idea of after 20 years of the level of involvement that a number of Western states have had in Afghanistan, what also is the moral responsibility to understand and to have knowledge about about not just the Taliban, but about Afghan politics and what animates these debates. Many Western diplomats, I think, uh, know better and, and also need to ensure that the debate in the West is more informed about what is happening uh, in some of these debates in Afghanistan. Uh, I think Western donors need to be uh, empowering colleagues who are based in Afghanistan to have more fine-grained responses to these issues so that um, you don't have these sort of high-stakes, highly politicized, top-level, you know, grand bargains or, you know, grand failures. Because this will be, you know, this will be an issue that goes on and on and on for years. And there's going to have to be a level of flexibility um, and accountability so that, you know, if, for example, um, the locals in Urizgan decide that they're going to shut girls out of school, then there can be consequences for that, you know. Um, and then, you know, if they decide to let the girls back in, there can be incentives uh, that, you know, that result. And it, that, that that can happen um, at a local level, um, you, you know, sometimes even week to week, um, rather than being this kind of, um, you know, result of a huge uh, understanding or lack of understanding between the West and the Taliban writ large. Could I just ask that with a follow-up, Graham or, or Ibrahim? I mean, as you say, it's an issue that really cuts into uh, Western policy discussions. And I remember uh, you know, I was in Doha when uh, the Taliban made the decision and a meeting between Taliban officials Western diplomats that was supposed to take place in Doha that was looking at mechanisms to try to get money into the central bank. That meeting was cancelled you know, for all intents and purposes because of that decision. But since then, 
the discussions of central bankers, as, as you sort of talked about before, Graham, is sort of where at the moment the policy discussion is. How concretely has that, I mean, those discussions are still ongoing, right? I mean, has, has that, has concretely that decision beyond the council meeting in Doha, has concretely that decision actually changed the way that Western diplomats have approached the central bank issue in their talks? I mean, yes, I think the, um, you're right. There, you know, there, there was a a kind of concrete outcome in the sense that, um, it set back those negotiations over the future of central banking. I'm really happy though, that, uh, those talks have been able to resume quietly. Um, and I really hope that progress, uh, is made on that, you know, for the reasons we mentioned before. And also partly because, you know, it, it shows an ability to unbundle our offerings to Afghanistan. I mean, I would argue, and I'm, I'm actually curious to know if Ibrahim agrees with me on this. I would argue that, that one of the reasons why Western intervention failed in Afghanistan was we were offering a package deal to Afghans and they never had any power to pick apart that package. Having lost the war, uh, we should approach Afghanistan much more humbly And to the extent possible, we should be trying to disaggregate our offerings. We should be saying, you know, okay, like, what can we work with the Taliban on? Are we we interested in rebuilding the irrigation system? Um, You know, what can we do about the electrical system? Um, And in areas where uh, we cannot find a a way of cooperating, we we let it go. Ibrahim, are there any sort of voices in Afghanistan that are saying to Western governments, you know, don't give the Taliban money or don't restart the economy until they reverse their decision on girls' education. I mean, is this a is this a policy that has a constituency in Afghanistan itself? Presumably, however much you disagree with the decision on women's education, the cost of this is not being borne really by the government itself. It's being borne by, by ordinary Afghans, as you've talked about. The short answer is yes, there is a constituency and more broadly I would say that there is perhaps a constituency that's saying we shouldn't be assisting uh, a Taliban-led Afghanistan. And I think the thinking or the rationale behind that is, and that was a decision especially in the initial uh, days after the Taliban took over, there was, I suppose, a quiet discussion on do we reimpose sanctions and make lives hard for Afghans because the alternative is providing support to a Taliban-led government. And not only is that morally reprehensible, but it also strengthens and consolidates the Taliban's hold on power. But uh, I guess the the counter-argument one that even if we were to have resistance to the Taliban, it is unlikely that the Taliban will be completely removed from the country. They've survived an international intervention, they've survived a civil war, and they're likely to remain, even if they lose control of parts of the country, they're likely to remain a dominant player in the country. And what, what that looks like is a fragmented Afghanistan, which, has, which creates a vacuum and a space for uh, more radicalized and more militant groups to operate and threaten regional and global security. So I think that was the the kind of the counter argument that won the day. Uh, but to go back to your question again, yes, there is a constituency that's saying that we need to withhold uh, support from the Taliban until they have met X, Y and Z conditions. But I fully endorse what Graham said that perhaps that by having a package deal, we, we might be hamstringing ourselves and, and perhaps it's time to consider a disaggregate approach on how we interact with a Taliban-led Afghanistan. Uh, let's perhaps close with uh, with broadening out the discussion we've been having. Um, it would be great to hear from you what your sense is of the the opportunities for political inclusion. So should we understand this decision around the schools to be indicative of a broader unwillingness to include other communities uh, in governance? Or do you see there being uh, chances for that developing in the near future. I mean, I think Ibrahim has a much finer read on uh, sort of internal Taliban politics than I do, so I'll, I'll I'll defer to him. But just first, I would say there's been a really interesting development that has gotten almost zero media attention, uh, in that the Taliban are holding little local level elections. To my surprise, 
uh, it's for a, a local post, uh, often known as Wakili Guzar. Um, they're kind of uh, sub-municipal officials. It's a very low-level position. But um, in practical terms, you know, uh, Afghans are voting uh, to some extent in some places um, for local representatives who serve as an interface between themselves and the Taliban. And, you know, I think this is uh, an interesting space to watch. Um, I think local governance might be uh, one way that the Taliban might be able to uh, respond to some of those demands for representation. I would say that um, what we've seen over the past, what the past few months have made quite obvious is that international concerns come quite secondary to the Taliban when they are making decisions. Uh, to me, it seems like intra-movement concerns tend to dominate and be the prime driver for what decisions the Taliban make, followed perhaps by domestic concerns, what Afghans in general are demanding or asking for or need. So I think there is a, a, perhaps a need to to be more humble in terms of what capacity we have in influencing Taliban policies. I mean, we in the West don't have a lot of standing uh, to argue that there needs to be, you know, uh, stabilization through inclusivity. But, you know, um, as Ibrahim says, um, the Taliban are uh, listening to the concerns of, of Afghans. And I think if they, if they listen hard, they will realize that there needs to be a, a better way of, of including a, a diversity of voices. So that's, I mean, I think that is, um, that is where the rubber will hit the road politically. Um, and we'll see. I mean, they're still deciding uh, on a constitution. We hear that the review that's ongoing of all of the country's laws and the constitution, um, that review is ongoing. So we don't yet know the, the future structure of the Afghan government. Ibrahim, Graham, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on Afghanistan, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Sam Mednick, and also to Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all of you, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch with any questions or comments, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. Leave us a positive rating or review if you enjoyed the show. Tell your friends and colleagues about us, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.